Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I'm really excited to talk to my guest today. She is Dr. Elizabeth Newman, who is the Eula May and John Ball Professor of Theology and Ethics at the Baptist Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Welcome, Beth, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to join you. Now, we just have to be honest and tell everybody that we have been friends for a long, long time. That's right. In fact, once upon a time, when both of us were quite a bit younger, Beth was one of my students at the Baptist uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I remember her so distinctly, her bright uh, countenance, her brilliant thinking. She was just a wonderful student. And she's gone on to do a Ph.D. at Duke University, where she worked with the great Jeffrey Wainwright. She also served for some 12 years on the faculty of St. Mary's College in uh, Indiana, Notre Dame, uh, before going to Richmond. So you've had a quite a long and weighty uh, involvement in theological education and in the Lord's work uh, for a long time. So tell, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've just given some of the bare bones of your biography, but kind of where your path has taken you since we saw each other in a classroom in Louisville those many years ago. Right. Um, well, I uh, yeah, grew up in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, and, and the Baptist tradition raised by very faithful Christian parents, and I'm still um, Baptist, of course, but part of my journey has really been coming to see Baptist as part of the larger, wider body of Christ. So I think as I've studied at Duke and and even before that at Southern Seminary and then uh, taught at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, one of my passions has been the unity of the Church and seeking ways to help foster that in my teaching and also in my writing. And and that also relates to your work on the Baptist World Alliance's Commission on Doctrine and Christian Unity, and you were a member of our International Baptist Catholic Dialogue Team. That's right, yes. That was a great privilege. So we had uh, the privilege of sharing that work together. Now, today in our conversation, I want to focus on one of your most recent books. You may have written something since then, but it came out in, in 2012 called Attending the Wounds on Christ's Body, Teresa's Scriptural Vision. It is a book about St. Teresa of Avila, who, by the way, was born 500 years ago this year on March the 28th. So, uh, Beth, you must be the only Baptist theologian ever in the history of the world who's written a book on St. Teresa of Avila. Why did you do that? I think uh, probably my own direct encounter with her came Really, actually, when I was an undergraduate at Wake Forest, and I studied in Spain for a semester and went to Avila and uh, visited her her birthplace. And then when I was at St. Mary's College, since I was teaching female undergraduates, mostly Catholic, I wanted to introduce them to this, some of the great female uh, theologians of the Church. But I think the actual genesis of really thinking I should write about Teresa came when I was teaching the Baptist seminarians uh, at BTSR, and there was a very 
common tendency amongst my students to read Teresa. In my book, I focus mostly on her classic, The Interior Castle. And the tendency, not only by Baptists, but by a lot of modern readers, is to read Teresa's work as one of kind of almost personal, private spirituality, like it's an interior quest of finding God within. And it became my conviction that that wasn't at all what Teresa was writing about, but really uh, her book, which in Spanish is Las Moradas, or the dwellings, Mm. is really about a journey um, into the unity of the body of Christ. So it was that sort of background that gave me the impetus to think about writing about her in a slightly different way. Now, you, you mentioned how Teresa has often been portrayed, and we all think of the famous Bernini st- uh, statue of Teresa, which is in Rome, in a church in Rome. I've seen it. It's an amazing thing to to, to behold, where she's sort of slain with the uh, dart of the angel piercing her soul in a ecstasy that is uh, certainly sensual in some of its aspects. Oh, yes. So talk a little bit about that statue and what how that feeds into the caricature that in some ways you're trying to bring a corrective to. Right. I think, um, uh, yeah, that, you know, it, it, some people will see that, and particularly Protestants, and be turned off by it or read it as here is a nun who has these repressed sexual desires and was kind of projecting them onto God. And Bernini um, does pick up on some of Teresa's passages in her book, but really, what Teresa's doing, and one of the key scriptural figures that she uses is that of marriage. And of course, we see this, you know, in the book of Hosea, where God is, you know, pursuing us. And even when we turn from God, God continues to love us lavishly. And so Teresa uses the images of engagement, of betrothal, and of marriage to sort of capture that deep, profound love of God. And it's a love that we experience personally, but that the church is also to be the bride of Christ. We are to live into that. So I think, again, we, we, we all want to soften Teresa's great passion as a, you know, as a, a, a Spanish uh, woman in the 16th, 16th century, but the passion is really about how we love God with our lives in the context of community. Yeah, that's great. And I want to come back to that theme because that's really, I think, a central theme in in your book, and it's reflected in the title, Attending to the Wounds on Christ's Body. But first, right. let, let's let's put her back in the context of 16th century Spain. You say you visited this city of Avila. It's a famous city, yeah. isn't it? Wall City from medieval Spain, going back much even earlier than that. And that's where she was born in 1515. Say a little bit about, about the Spain of her time, her family background, and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, well, she came from a family that was fairly well off. Um, her grandfather was a converso, which is the Spanish word for a uh, Jewish uh, a Jew who converted forcibly, actually, to Christianity. And that's just a kind of notorious thing that happened in uh, in Spain at the time. The Jews were either had to leave or convert to Christianity. But he was a converso and sort of bought his way into some sense of nobility. Spain at that time was very much a society that emphasized honor and purity. And purity had to do with purity of blood, and the honor had to do with 
so, like it does today with social status, with money, with your place in society. And so Teresa was raised in this context as a young girl. She had even a desire to go off and to save the Moors um, and had even made an effort with one of her brothers at one point. So she had a kind of you know, romantic idea of, of Christianity early on. But after the death of her mother, decided to uh, become a Carmelite. And she was in the Carmelite order for quite a while. And a lot of the way the order operated was you know, was similar to society at large in terms of women would come in with their servants and um, bring some of the same standards from society into the order. So really, her desire to reform the Carmelite order came after she had been in it for about 20 years, and she wanted to simplify the order so that there was a more focus on uh, sort of living faithfully and uh, living a different kind of honor than the one in her society. You know, in some ways, her early life reminds me a little bit of St. Francis of Assisi because, uh-huh. you know, she also went through this sort of rebellious period, I guess you would say, when she was interested in costumes and jewelry and flirting with boys and that sort of thing. So coming yes. in, into the monastery was, in a sense, a kind of, for her, slow maybe and painful, but eventual a renunciation of some of those more alluring uh, temptations of life to come to focus more on what it meant to be a woman of God, a woman of faith. Right, yeah, that's a nice comparison. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that's true. And she had this, she writes about this encounter she had when she was, I guess, in her late 30s before a statue of Christ, and it was a an image of Christ in his suffering. And The experience that she writes about was where she felt very deeply that Christ needed her uh, and wanted her. And as she sort of reflects on that, she um, comes to see that it's through Christ that she sees she is loved and that Christ wants her to use her own gifts. And so the sense of women in that day as well, not, you know, not being held in real great esteem in the church in some ways, um, or their gifts not fully being used. But Teresa comes you know, through this encounter with Christ to see that not only is she wanted, but hey, she even has these gifts that Christ has given to her to use for the church. That's wonderful. And uh, say a little bit about the Spanish Inquisition. This was also the time when this institution, which had been uh, around for a little while when uh, uh, St. Teresa was born, but she came into contact with it, and in some ways it was a force to be reckoned with, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was. Um, Teresa herself wasn't overly worried about the Inquisition. Um, I think in some ways there's a lot of hype around it, and of course it was a very negative, coercive tool used, but for Teresa, when the book of her life was put before the Inquisition, what they were concerned about was whether or not she was veering in her theology towards a kind of, almost a kind of Gnosticism. There was a group called the Alumbrados. The people ones, that had the inner, Yeah, the Enlightened, um, kind of had the inner light. Um, and, you know, in her own writings, Teresa's like, well, I know, you know, if there's anything wrong, take it out. You know, I'm faithful to what the church teaches. And She wanted to be an orthodox a, uh, believer and teacher, no doubt about it. Roy Williams yeah. gave, gave a lecture on Teresa, I heard, in which he compared the, 
the, the, the Spanish Inquisition in her case to sort of like an overscrupulous IRS today. I mean, <laughs> they just hound you to death. They keep coming back. They're going to trick you up here or there. It was that kind of uh, very super nuisance more than it was actual uh, literal uh, being flayed with, uh, you know, tongs or something like that. But, yes, yes, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, that is. And I, had heard, I hadn't heard that yeah. comparison. But I think that's true in Teresa's case. Yeah. And well, you know, even on her on her deathbed, she said, you know, I, I am a daughter of the church. I mean, that's right. really she wanted to be remembered very much uh, as a daughter of the church and uh, you know, a son, brother, and sister in Christ. So exactly. I think that's a, a key point. Now, earlier in our conversation, you brought up the uh, theme, the image of marriage as one way yeah. of talking about this. Another image uh, for Teresa is that of friendship. And, right. of course, what she did, she was a uh, a monastic reformer. I mean, she did actually found Carmelite monasteries, right, and kind of tried, yeah. tr- tried to give a sort of oversight, a guideline, spiritual oversight to this group of nuns in Spain. And one of the themes that I find in her writings very strong is that of friendship, which is not mm-hmm. not based on the things you were talking about that were so important, the culture of purity and honor and status, hierarchy, achievement, but rather right. a kind of openness uh, to uh, uh, a love and to mutual respect for one another. And that, I think, also comes through in, in some of her writings, this theme of friendship. Yes, uh, very much so. And, um, you know, one of the things I emphasize in my book is that Teresa is a reformer. I mean, we've been saying that, but like, like Martin Luther and can be understood in some ways akin to some of the emphases in Luther's theology as well, uh, which, you know, has to do with a, a friendship with God, a closeness. God isn't a distant figure who we have to appease or we have to do things to please um, or to earn our salvation. And I think for Teresa, the, the theme of friendship also functions very much in that same way. I mean, you know, Teresa, for her, and that really is about how deeply we are loved by God. So even the image that she begins her book with, which is that of the dwellings or a castle when they're you know, hundreds and hundreds of rooms and mansions inside, Christ is at the center. So God is always closer to us than we are to ourselves. And no matter where we are in life, and it might be that we, you know, she uses these wonderfully little quaint figures like lizards, you know, on your backs and (laughs) keeping you from moving through the mansions. And there are different things that in our lives might blind us to God's presence, but God is always there. So that's just absolutely key. And then for friendship with her sisters, I mean, the closer you become to Christ, the closer you become to others, and vice versa. I think those go together for her. And you, you mentioned, I think, quite rightly, the Christological focus in Teresa and the communitarian nature of uh, what she was about as a leader in this uh, monastic reform. I want to right. read. I want to read two sentences from your book, from your chapter on Teresa as a saint for unity, and have you comment on it. And this okay. has to do with the fact we, we've said this is the one. This is the anniversary, 500th anniversary, 
of her birth, 1515. That's, of course, two years before Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. And yes, here, right. So here, here's how you bring that together at one point in your book. Though Teresa was on the other side of the Protestant Reformation in a superficial and anachronistic sense, she, oddly from a Reformation perspective, revivifies Scripture as a providential way of life. This is medicine for the whole church because the whole body is called to live into providential patterns as embodied in the Word of God. Those are powerful sentences. What, what did you mean by that, Beth? Yeah, well, Teresa, one of the things that when you read through the whole of the interior castle, there are scriptural figures that very much a part of Teresa's imagination. And it's interesting, Teresa had access to large parts of the Bible that had been translated into Spanish, but she didn't read Latin, so she wouldn't have had the whole Bible. So most of her biblical and scriptural knowledge uh, would have come through the little reading she could do, but through her the liturgy and the feast days and all of the ways that the church was a part of her life. But what I do in the um, book is I lift up some of the patterns, what I call you know, providential scriptural patterns that Teresa uses. One of these, for example, being dwellings, you know, that God comes and dwells with us and dwells with a people. And you know, that's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, of course, most fully in Jesus Christ, where God, you know, one translation says God pitches his tent amongst us. And it's reading our lives so that we see ourselves in that story mm. that enables us to be a people, sinful though we are, <laughs> you know, living by the grace of God and, and learning to read ourselves through those patterns, I think is um, a huge tool for creating unity in the church. Teresa was a, we, we of course speak of her as Saint Teresa. I want you to say a word about Teresa as a saint. What does that mean? Uh, particularly for you as a Baptist, for you as a Protestant. And then also another title uh, that, uh, with which she is addressed in the church today is Doctor. She is, yes. a, she is Doctor Ecclesiae, Doctor of the Church. Say a little right. bit about both of those titles as they apply to Teresa of Avila, Saint and Doctor. Saint, I think, yeah, for those of us who've grown up in in some in some of the Protestant traditions, that wasn't a word we often use to describe people. But it is biblical, of course. Uh, I mean, Paul, when he writes to the churches at Corinth, he talks about everyone being a saint, which I certainly want to affirm. And here, you know, saint is whole, being holy and being set apart primarily mm. for the sake of the world. I've always loved. Uh, Stanley Harawas has said that God never leaves a congregation without at least one saint. So I'll let the listeners reflect upon whether or not they think that's true in their own context. But there's a sense, I think, in which he's getting at is that the saints are gifts that God gives to the church. And we might have saints, you know, in our different traditions, but these can be resources for the whole church. And Pope John Paul II, as well as one of my mentors, Jeffrey Rainwright, who um, I mentioned earlier, has talked about the saints being resources for building up the unity of the Church. So Teresa herself was named a saint uh, about 40 years after she died. 
But then her title of doctor took a while. And I should just say, the, the language of Dr. Ecclesia, doctor of the church, uh, doctor is related to doctrine, which means teaching. So a doctor is one who lives a holy life, but also has teaching that is welcomed and received and honored by the church. And so I love the story. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, who is uh, also a uh, writes on Teresa, um, said that in 1922, uh, it was her name was put forward to be uh, named a doctor of the church, and the Pope at the time just wrote on a note, "Obstet sexus" <laughs> in Latin, which means her sex stands in the way yeah. of her being named a doctor of the church. Right. <laughs> and he really added, "I leave the delicate question to be decided by my successor." Well, in 1970, she was uh, finally declared the first uh, woman doctor of the Catholic Church. Yes, and shortly afterwards, St. Catherine of Siena uh, was right. named Doctor of the Church as well. So, uh, uh, Neil, uh, uh, Neil Obstadt replaced uh, Sextus Obstadt <laughs> right. in, That's right. in, in 1970. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and uh, I'd like to, to sort of close our, our discussion of Teresa by quoting a very famous uh, statement she made, and maybe you could just end with any words you want to say about her and uh, encouragement for others in this uh, 500th anniversary of her birth to dig out some of her writings. Uh, the interior castle is maybe the most accessible, but also the way of perfection. She has an autobiography. She has a commentary on the Song of Songs. I don't know how easily uh, obtainable that is, but she's a wonderful writer. Um, and yes. and let, let me – I'm sure you're familiar with this. Let nothing disturb you, she wrote. Let, not, oh, yeah. let no, nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's really a beautiful prayer of hers. And if I may, Timothy, I might add a quote to that that I really love at mm-hmm. the very end of Interior Castle when she's uh, telling her sisters, you know, reform or even a Christian life isn't necessarily about going out and doing the great thing, mm. but it's the way you live um, in small and humble ways. And she writes, the Lord does not look so much at the magnitude of anything we do as at the love with which we do it. Mm. That's wonderful. So I thought that was really... Wonderful. Um, and really, her reform was about not so much trying to change this thing or change that thing, but really to be um, a, a community of humility, um, of prayer, and of charity, to be that uh, presence in the church. So she really embodied this, I think, in her own life. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Elizabeth Newman, who teaches at the Baptist Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. She's also a member of the Baptist World Alliance's Commission on Doctrine and Christian Unity, a wonderful theologian uh, and scholar. She's written a book uh, published in 2002 on Teresa of Avila. We've been talking about Teresa. Her book is entitled Attending the Wounds on Christ's Body, 
Teresa's scriptural vision. And Beth, if I could say so, uh, you yourself are a Dr. Ecclesia, not quite maybe as officially yet as Teresa of Avila. We need another pope to come along and recognize you in that way. But thank you for the good work you do in this book and in all of your teaching and writing and scholarly ministry on behalf of the body of Christ. Oh, you're welcome. Timothy, thank you so much for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. God bless you. You too. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.